Welcome to the Barry Sachs Show. Thanks for joining me on the Barry Sachs Show. I am Barry Cockroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We will be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure, and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each episode, including a transcript, the show notes, and any links, can be found at barrysax.com. Joseph Murphy has been saxophone professor at Mansfield University of Pennsylvania since 1987. He's also been director of bands, department chair, and taught a variety of courses. He received his Bachelor of Music Education from Bowling Green State University, Ohio, and his master's and doctorate degrees from Northwestern University. His teachers have included John Sampin, Fred Hemke, and he also received a Fulbright Award for a year of study in Bordeaux, France, to study with Jean-Marie Londex. His guitar and saxophone ensemble, Duo Montagnard, was formed in 2002 and has performed over 300 concerts. Joseph has premiered over 90 new works and has recorded 10 albums. He's performed in all 50 states, 8 Canadian provinces, 24 countries and 6 continents, including performances at 10 World Saxophone Congresses. Please welcome my guest today, American concert saxophonist Joseph Murphy. Joe, thank you very much for joining me this early in the morning. Thank you. And a great place to start, of course, is how did you get started on the saxophone? I got started on the saxophone in fifth grade. In fourth grade, every quarter of the year, you got to try string instruments and brass instruments and woodwind instruments. So then at the end of fourth grade, we got to choose which one we wanted to do starting in fifth grade. And I distinctly still remember looking through the music room window at this really curvy instrument with a lot of buttons all over, and it looked really complicated. You know, not just like a... You know, a brass instrument with three buttons or, you know, it's just a straight flute. And so I really was intrigued by the shape of the saxophone. And, you know, many years later, I say, you know, that it's obvious that it was a instrument of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, of course, I didn't say that as a fourth grader, um, but I was immediately drawn to the to the look of the saxophone. Is the fifth grade young in the States for starting? I'd, um, for band instruments, that's around the youngest. Some might start in sixth grade, but I think they usually say it's because of the teeth. You know, you still have baby teeth in the third and fourth grade. So I think that's the normal reason given um, why most most uh, kids start in fifth grade, as opposed to string instruments, whereas like all over the world, they start as four-year-olds or three-year-olds sometimes. So I noticed they've started pushing the beginning age down in France, and they're looking for new teaching uh, resources, and they're retraining teachers to be able to cope with the psychology of younger students. Mm -hmm. And they're starting them down around six years old on on smaller instruments and slightly simplified like soprano. And they're saying, it's fine. Of course, 
we'll find about the impact on the teeth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, well, of course, their system is completely different anyway. So I'm curious when they start them at six years old. What I remember from France is even before being allowed to start saxophone, you had to take a whole year of solfege. So are they getting rid of that? If you start at age six, do you have to do solfege at age five? Maybe they start, you know, um, in their first year when they're one, yeah. solfege. <laughs> <laughs> huh. But I guess it's the idea is that um, it puts the saxophone on an even level with some of the other instruments that right. young kids start. Piano and strings. Yeah. But I could imagine the, the hardest thing would be the psychology of it. Right. Pretty much everyone is trained working with more mature students. Right. So it's very interesting to see how that turns out. Mm -hmm. Now, could you describe who your teachers were early on? Sure. Um, well, in high school, I, uh, I grew up in Ohio and I took lessons uh, from a, a university just about an hour away at the University of Akron. Um, and then when in undergrad school, I went to a state school in Ohio, Bowling Green State University. It was John Sampin's first year there. So I kind of lucked out. I didn't even know how famous he was or going to be. Um, and then after four years of study with uh, Sampin at Bowling Green, I went immediately to a master's degree at Northwestern. Sampin's teacher, Fred Hemke. And at the time, that was just a one-year master's program. Uh, and then after that, I taught high school in Ohio for two years. And after that, uh, then I, I studied with Lundex for a year. And after that year in Bordeaux, came back and replaced Sampin, who was on a sabbatical for a year. And then got my current job in the fall of 1987. So that's quite a while in your job. Yeah. Is that common that uh, when you you win a position in the university system that the, the people stick with it, or do they move around? Well, I don't th I don't know if you can uh, generalize that. I think it has to do with the nature of the position, the uh, attitude of the uh, the person. Um, I, when I got there, I just loved my students and my colleagues and, you know, it's decent pay and decent retirement. So, and, uh, I was married and had a kid, didn't want to drag them all around. So that's, uh, for me, it, it's been good for me, but, you know, for other people, you know, they, uh, either didn't like their first position or just had higher aspirations or it's just their personality to keep climbing the ladder, you know, so. So you were a Fulbright scholar. Yes. Is, uh, is that a scholarship that allows, uh, that pays your way to go overseas? Yes. Fulbright, um, pays the travel. And let's see, boy, this is 32 years ago at, uh, or maybe even more at, uh, at Bordeaux. I think they paid the travel and they gave a, a small stipend for, uh, for your housing. Yeah. For wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was amazing. You're talking about 32 years ago and just yesterday 
I bumped into Londix, of course. Mm-hmm. He's here at the World Saxophone Congress, still coming. Yeah. Uh, after all these I think years. he's literally the only one left who's been to all of them. Isn't that amazing? I think Sampin's been to all but one. <laughs> and I, I think it's just Londex that's been to literally all 18 now. Wow. Could you perhaps describe some of the differences you saw between your different teachers? Well, let's see. I think Londex really gave a reason for everything. And sometimes it would seem far-fetched, you know, like he, he would refer to architecture or refer to nature or refer to a, a work of art to kind of, uh, direct you through the, the piece or give you some type of reference to how to play a piece. Um, as opposed to, uh, Sampin and Hemke, who I kind of describe as intuitive geniuses. They tell you what to do. And then after the fact, you say, wow, why couldn't I think of that? How am I going to do this for the next piece? Or am I, am I going to rely on these teachers forever to tell me how it goes? So uh, they were very different in, in, in that way. And it's kind of like, kind of like in, in master classes. When, when I give a master class, I don't like to tell a student it goes this way. Um, because, you know, they have some very good musical intuition and so does their teacher. And I don't want to say, you know, do this. Um, whenever I give a master class, I try to give them different ways of practice that they can use on literally any piece that will give them different perspectives as opposed to saying, do it this way, or they—they they don't really say do it this way. They—they they would uh, couch in the terms of try this, you know. And it's okay if you don't end up doing it. But um, Lundex always seems so studied—a reason for everything. Hem, Hemke and Sampin, in their own way, were, were are very, very intuitive. Do you think that the the French tradition that Lundex had of a very strict approach? and very disciplined. Did you cope coming from a different country into France? Did you cope with that? Well, yes, I guess for several reasons. One, I had good teachers, Samp and Hemke prior to that. And two, I had already finished my master's degree. So, you know, I'd had several teachers. I'd played, you know, many pieces. I, I was, kind of experienced at the time anyway, as opposed to some students who um, maybe studied in Bordeaux their sophomore year in college. So, I mean, I had already had two degrees and a couple very good teachers. So I... I guess in that sense, it was more like a kind of finishing school way. Yeah. Go for refinement and, right. and knowledge and, and not the technique as such. Right. Do you find that your teaching now is informed by the experiences you had as a student or have you branched out into your own way of teaching? I think my own way of teaching, kind of like I said a minute ago about, wow, you know, when they say do this, and it seems so obvious and so natural. Why didn't I think of that? How can I, you know, how can I set up a system that I, kind of discover these things about the music without having a teacher tell me them. So I, I do have a 
specific way that I like students to prepare and that I prepare a piece of music and, and, you know, not only uh, on day one, what you do on the first couple days of a piece, but pretty much every day thereafter, um, that I think discovers or creates, um, one's interpretation of a piece. Could you, could you imagine a piece sitting in front of you now, a new piece? Could you describe that process? I guess the maxim that I live by is, uh, know how it goes before you play it. And, you know, for a 10 year old, that just means, well, let's say the counting first. Let's kind of get some understanding of how this is going to go before we play it. Um, for a more advanced student or for myself, the level I'm still at is I want to sing it before I play. I want to internalize it. I want. I want to recompose this piece of music, you know, kind of like a phrase I use a lot in my teaching and is in French, a performer is an interpreter. That's a very powerful word as opposed to in English, a performer is a circus clown, <laughs> you know, an interpreter is a recomposer. That's where I've been going wrong. Now I understand. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, on day one, I, I want to sing it. Mm. I want to literally memorize it on day one. I want to recompose this. I want to play it perfectly. Even if I just play three phrases or two lines or whatever, I want to start getting to the, you know, as Lundex would say, the fire of the music, not just the smoke. Um, I, I, even if it's, even if I don't get to the end of the piece for two months, I guess that's uh, one of the differences with other with other people, and it works for them. Uh, you know, they'll sight read through the piece just to kind of see how it goes and wh- where the difficult spots are, and then then they'll start to dig into it. But I don't want to sight read a, a piece that I'm going to stick with that I'm going to play. That's interesting. I guess in a way you could argue that that's something that you believe and use that other people don't or they in essence they would disagree with that they might say well we should sight read it first to get a right well as i tell my students sight reading is a terribly important skill but i prefer not to sight read music that i'm going to stay with for a while because whether you realize it or not that first time through is affecting your second time through and your third time through and is uh is affecting how you ultimately play That's very interesting so if i guess then if you're wanting to work on your sight reading you use other music exactly that perhaps comes back to that technique uh, you may remember taking classes in dechiffrage uh, where there's a teacher who helps you with sight reading outs- right. outside of the class. Yeah, and it didn't even have any, it wasn't even saxophone music. It was you know, Anything. just music. I mean, and there were whole books people wrote, these sight reading exercises. Exactly. I haven't come across that outside of um, France. The, no. It's interesting. I found that the sight reading skill often came from, particularly playing in a band, mm-hmm. seeing so much music and different music, and each time you come across something new, you learn it. And, and that becomes your sight reading skill. And then as I kept playing and in a sense focusing more and more on less and less, my sight reading became weaker. Hmm. And the more I played from memory, the less I was reading and therefore my reading skills diminished a little bit. Hmm. This is very interesting. And 
I sort of asked myself, is that a bad thing? And sometimes I'd have a new thing to sight read and I'm like, oh, wish I, I used to be able to sight read much better. Right. But at the same time, I feel um, I, I spend a lot of time playing without music in front of me. Yeah. And I like that liberty, I guess. Yeah. Well, and that's I mean, the second Throughout our career, things will ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'll go through years and not play well, maybe not years, but you'll go through months and not play Barry or, you know, or soprano or whatever. So things will ebb and flow. Is there a piece of advice you could give to a university student who's just starting out? Stay healthy. Right. That's very interesting. So what's your advice to not just staying healthy as such, but being able to play for a long, long time, you know, throughout your life? A balanced approach of, you know, sometimes when people are really practicing a whole lot, they maybe create some physical problems for themselves, whether it be in the throat or the jaw or the fingers or who knows what. Yeah, I guess just listen to your body. And, you know, if you get a chance to do Alexander technique or something like that, you know, definitely do it. Do you find these kinds of physical studies are incorporated into music teaching? Or is it really only for people who go out and, and seek it? Oh, it completely depends on the teacher. Okay. It's quite a specialist thing you're talking about, having some knowledge of... of uh, well, I mean, the, the flute teacher at my school, uh, she incorporates Alexander techniques or some types of things or yoga stuff or a lot like that in practically every lesson. So it really depends on the, the individual teacher. The third aspect of health that I see in musicians is mental health. And being able to sustain a long career, I see people drop off from time to time. And I think sometimes it's due not necessarily to the stress of playing, but being able to cope with Mm self-criticism and to be able to stand on stage and enjoy the moment instead of being critical of the things that didn't work. Well, uh, I kind of take that back to what what I said, you know, 10 minutes ago is really understanding the piece of music, really recomposing this piece of music <coughs> as opposed to standing up there and playing great, but really not understanding it, really not defending the composer, really not telling a story. And, and the more that you understand the piece of music and talk to the composer and, and be able to play it by memory, even if you choose to not to in performance, um, the more mentally engaging that is and, and, you know, engages your soul as opposed to, I'm just a performing monkey up there. And yeah, I'm playing great, but I'm really not, it's not nourishing my soul. So I I think that's an important aspect. So, I mean, in in a sense, if music does nourish you, then that's going to contribute to your well-being. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we're spending hours doing this every day. Right. And if you're just a performing monkey, you're going to potentially get depressed. I guess that's the important thing you described of using the word interpreter, uh, gives you a completely different perspective on how you approach right. performing, but also preparing for performance. Right. Is is memory something that you, first of all, do you like to perform for memory? Is it something that you do often? Do you have any special techniques for performing for memory? Maybe between seven and 15 years ago, I was pretty much performing everything by memory. 
um, solo stuff, stuff with piano. Um, lately, I, I'm not performing a lot by memory. Mainly I'm playing with, uh, with this guitarist. And we don't play by memory. Although in my practicing, like I said a minute ago, I, I, I practice so that I have it memorized, even if I choose to not perform by memory. Um, and you asked about techniques for memory. It goes back to, you know, what I said about day one, that you, uh, you start to memorize the piece of music on day one. And by doing that, you'll discover the interrelationships of the piece of music and, uh, it takes a little longer to get through the piece, uh, but each piece you do will go a little bit quicker and you'll see more interrelations. I, I like that idea because often memory, the process of memorization is the source at the end. Yeah. And you think, for example, if you spend one month practicing a piece and then one month memorizing a piece, you've effectively lost one of those months because right whereas you could probably do it in six weeks yeah <laughs> as opposed to the eight weeks it's interesting i'm always curious why why people f feel like they need to do it last and not first in terms of memorization if you have music inside of you in your mind then you're processing that all of the time even when you're not sitting at your saxophone it's just there it's knowledge and therefore your brain is as opposed to sight reading forever. Yeah, sight reading forever. Nice. Would you describe your career as stage-by-stage stage event or something more organic? Mm, I'd say something more organic. Yeah. I guess a way to describe that is uh, did you go from opportunity to opportunity? Is that how it worked? For example, you didn't say at age 18, I'm determined to go and study in France and things like that. Well, after my undergrad which I did get in music ed, I really didn't feel ready to teach high school. So I did my master's. And then after my master's year, which was uh, the 82-83 school year, um, the Geneva Concours was in the fall of 83. And I was practicing like crazy uh, that summer you know, there was like four or five of us from Northwestern who were preparing to go to Geneva in the fall of 83. And we were probably practicing eight hours a day, and other people came in from out of town. Jim Mumble came in for some Hemke Master classes. And, and then one morning I just woke up in Evanston. It's about August 1st and said, what am I going to do in the fall? I don't have a job. And psychologically, I couldn't practice anymore. So I didn't go to Geneva. I, uh, I went back to Ohio to, to find a, a high school teaching job. And so then I taught high school for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, during that second year, I applied uh, to, go, to go to France and got accepted. Um, I don't know if I wouldn't have gotten accepted or not gotten the Fulbright. I probably would have kept teaching high school maybe eventually gotten the doctorate. So things just fell into place. As a high school teacher, how do you maintain, or perhaps you can remember back to those two years, but how do you maintain a high level of playing 
while you're so busy. Uh, I didn't. <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> there were sometimes as many as at least two weeks, maybe sometimes as many as three weeks where I didn't touch my saxophone when I was teaching high school. So I, I didn't maintain my level, um, which is why as good as only two years. <laughs> I, it was a, it was a very small school and I did band and choir and theater. So I was really the only music person at that school. So it was all encompassing and it didn't allow for uh, practicing, practicing, <laughs> yeah. which must have been. And I didn't know any French at the time. So right. once I uh, found out that I was going to be going to, to France, I started studying French on my own, mm. which is kind of a, another funny story. But uh, I mean, did, so did you have some French when you got to? Not really? Oh, well, what I studied on my own, yeah. And uh, Lundex arranged people's housing. Yep. And he arranged for me to stay with Marc Chisson. And Marc Chisson is a saxophonist who lives in Bordeaux. And so when I discovered that, I wrote Marc uh, a letter in French. And I said I wanted to introduce myself you know, in the reflexive introduire, which means to physically introduce oneself to somebody else. So uh, that he got a big laugh over that. <laughs> 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 how important has recording been first of all to your career mm -hmm. but also to your development um probably development much more than uh, career um i always describe recording as a very expensive practice session um as i tell my students there's some things you can only learn in recording sessions some things you can only learn in performance some things you can only learn when you teach some things you can only learn when you play by memory some things you can only learn by performing a piece 20 times you know so there there's just situations that you need to put yourself in that you're only going to learn things in those situations how does that go now when i see Every time someone gives a recital, the recording's online pretty much either immediately or live. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a change in the way the recording, obviously it's a change, but do you think therefore the function of recording has changed because it is so accessible? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's really just part of the social media uh, again. I see people, of course, looking for other interpretations when they come to a new piece. And now there's a proliferation of interpretations, but often because they're not uh, perhaps one recorded by the highest level, they may be a developing player, and also they haven't been through that rigorous recording process. Right. Do you think that people are listening perhaps to more recordings, but recordings that are out of a, a lesser quality? Yeah, I'm sure that's, that's true. So what would the impact therefore be on people's interpretation? Well... I'd still say it's better than not listening. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, they may have a slightly altered or, or warped sense of how a piece goes, but I think it's fine. As, you know, it's better than not listening. I have this idea that you should listen to a recording of a piece after you have 
made your own interpretation. Exactly, because what happens if your interpretation is the best ever? Right. <laughs> or the best few at least. Right, I agree with that. And the risk, of course, if you listen to other recordings is you just copy them. Exactly. And your own ideas are pushed aside. Right. But at the same time, it's so easy to listen to other recordings. It's a temptation. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about discovering music, but really, well, how does this go? And Exactly. I've, I see people struggling with it. They can't help have a peek. Right. It's right. like opening their Christmas presents early. Exactly. And it's a shame because I, I think coming up with an interpretation that works for that person is a real big challenge. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most important things. Right. And it's a real shame if, if it's lost. I agree. Your travel has taken you really to a lot of places, many mm-hmm. countries, of course. Mm-hmm. I believe 30 countries. Yeah, that's about yeah. right. Yeah. Six continents. Mm-hmm. You've played in some unusual places too. Mm-hmm. And I think you may have performed throughout the States. Yes, all 50. Yep. That's amazing. And eight Canadian provinces. That's amazing. There was, I of course got to hear you play in Australia on one of those tours. I guess playing with Matthew has formed a big part of that right. in your duo. Mm-hmm. Could, you do, could you talk about how that duo came to exist? Because a guitar and saxophone duo is obviously less common than, than right. piano. I mean, it was just simply uh, he was the guitarist at the school where I taught. And so I've always been interested in playing with other instruments other than piano. Um, so it, it's it's, you know, other than piano... The only other chordal instruments would either be a mallet instrument or, or, or a guitar. So, um, I was aware of a couple, a couple pieces like the Hovannis and, and things like that. But, uh, I wasn't aware of a lot of material. So the first year or two, we played a lot of flute and guitar transcriptions. Um, but then since then, we've commissioned a lot of music. So therefore you have worked. With composers. Yes. So how important has that been, obviously, to create repertoire, but how important has that been artistically to work with a composer in, in a slightly different art form? Well, it, I, I think it's, it's great. I mean, I have so much respect for the process of composition. I, I wish I could, uh, could do that. But uh, so, like I said, I have so much respect for composers that I, I really enjoy working with them and in general, do you work with the composer on a new piece, a collaboration as such, or do you get the finished score and, and off you go? Well, that really depends on the composer. Some will, uh, you know, some who don't have a whole lot of familiarity with the saxophone will, throughout the process, ask, you know, can you do this multiphonic? Can you do this technique? Um, you know, can you play this note at this dynamic or whatever. And then uh, some uh, who have a familiarity with the saxophone will just present the finished. Um, so it really depends on the composer. Out of the pieces that you have commissioned, are there particular pieces that stick that you play over and over again? And therefore, are there pieces that uh, perhaps you play some and then leave? And if that's the case, is there something that you found either in the process of the composition being created or the music itself, is there something that you can see that would help a piece stick in the repertoire and become played you know, by many people? And you know. I guess there's a couple answers to that. Certainly, yes, we have had pieces that uh, we've just played once or twice and then left 
left behind. And yes, there are pieces that we continue to play over and over again. And I'll get back to that in just a minute. But a while ago, you asked, um, had things evolved organically or have I planned things? And one thing that really has evolved organically is um, we found, you know, when we've commissioned maybe 40 pieces and we kind of find these trends amongst them so like last fall we played at northwestern for with a whole program of northwestern composers and this coming academic year we'll play at eastman for with all eastman composers so it's just kind of developed organically that we can put together these uh, themed programs and then also next year we'll do a concert at the university of michigan with all university of michigan uh, composers you also said, uh, asked if there are things in a composition that will allow it to stay in the repertoire. First of all, there aren't that many guitar and saxophone duos. So to actually stay in the guitar and saxophone repertoire, I'm not really sure. I mean, there, there are three others at this Congress. I mean, Alfonso Padilla, and then I think Preston Duncan is doing some stuff with guitar. And then there was one yesterday morning that I think I missed because I wasn't here yet. But I think we're one of four duos at this Congress. Something that uh, in the music, inherently in the music, that's going to allow, I, I think it's mainly the, the interaction of the instruments, the, the interplay um, that I really like from a composition, as opposed to, you know, you, what you think... Uh, a wind instrument and guitar, you kind of think just, okay, background strumming, and then you get this melody over the top. Well, I, I think it's really the the duo nature, the uh, the interaction of the instruments that makes it interesting. Perhaps it wasn't a goal, but how did it feel to have sort of, oh, I've, I've done all 50 states there? Well, that was kind <laughs> of another organic thing. Yeah. I didn't realize, I, I didn't set 50 states as a goal until... Matt and I did a tour in Texas, you know, I don't know, eight, eight or nine years ago. And, and then after that tour, I said, huh, I wonder how many states we've played in. And then, you know, just kind of checked them all off and said, wow, we've played in 20 some states. I guess we could make it a goal to play in all 50. So it really wasn't a goal from the beginning. A lot of people would love to tour like you have done. Is there something that could help them? one, finance their touring. Is there something in your experience that's helped to be able to, one, fund their touring, the travel costs, I guess, in, on one aspect, and then to be able to sustain that? It really depends on what situation they're in, but I guess a, a, a very broad piece of advice would be just plan well ahead and do a lot of research. I mean, when you if you want to play in schools, you know, you do the research and find out when their spring break is. You do the research and find out when their semesters begin and end, you know, and suggest to the, the teacher a good uh, day that would work or a span of time. And, you know, with, with enough uh, planning and research and, and from their school also, if, you know, they're teaching at a college, um, with enough lead time, they can probably get some travel funds for it. I mean, at my school, I'm on the uh, faculty professional development committee. And you'd be surprised the number of faculty who just 
don't get it in on time or get in a proposal at the very, very, very last minute. And they have misspellings in there. And, you know, just be prepared. Just work a year ahead. That's it's the easiest piece of advice. Now, I've got some rapid fire questions for you where you may like to give a brief answer, not compulsory. <laughs> if there was just one piece of music that you could play now forever, perhaps the desert island uh, scenario, <laughs> what piece would that be? Huh. Well, I guess it would either be Glasnov or Rock Me. <laughs> <laughs> I was worried you were going to say Long Tones. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know if my music's been compared to Glasnov before. <laughs> if you just had one hour to practice, how would you spend that hour? Huh. I guess it kind of goes back to some other teaching things that you asked about before, and I never gave you this answer yet. No matter what level of student I'm teaching, or even for my own practicing, I always think of three things. Tone, fingers, brain. And depending on where you're at, you know, tone could be two minutes or ten. Fingers could be five minutes or 20 and brain, who knows, brain, you know, could be without the saxophone brain could be just writing down the, the, the piece of music. You know, that's one particular technique for memory is I have my students write it so they don't have the uh, physical cue of, I can play it if you let me finger my saxophone, but can you write it down? So I guess it'd be just the generic tone fingers brain. Who do you consider to be one of the most successful contributors to the saxophone? Well, uh, definitely Londax. Uh, even now, even that he's not playing anymore, you know, that uh, the bibliography of all the literature is terribly important. I, I, every saxophonist probably has uh, that book or every library. Yeah, I'd probably say Londax. A lot of people, pretty much everyone, refers to one of their teachers as that sort of influence. And it is interesting, at the time, it's probably something you realize after you've left the teacher. And at the same time, the teacher probably has no, no idea that they're mm. having such a profound effect mm. on the future of the student very much in the moment. So it's an interesting, it's a, it's a bit with hindsight, isn't it, looking mm. to, to know. If we learn from our mistakes, is it okay to make mistakes? Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine to make, like you said, if you learn from them. <laughs> sure. Uh, are you good at coping with a mistake if it happens? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I heard a story about someone who, uh, if they made mistakes in performance, it led to uh, substance abuse. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's not coping with the, the pressure of uh, the mistakes. Right. And that's not, certainly not learning. That's not communing with a composer. <laughs> You're up there defending this composer. <laughs> You're performing at a world event this week. Is there something that you do before you walk on stage that allows you to perform at your best? I guess I like to just review the music in my head, you know, maybe even sing it a little bit and just get my ears and brain working or fingers i you know some 
some people like to put almost Vaseline or stuff. I like my fingers to be completely dry. I use like alcohol on my fingers and then even put some baby powder on so they're nice and dry and those couple little things. Looking back, is there a piece of advice you could give to your younger self that you would have liked to have heard? I guess we all have regrets or things we wish we could be or have done. I guess I really never have had teachers that have pushed improvisation. So I guess I, I wish I would have done more improvisation. I guess I would have done more composition, but I guess there's still time. Good answer. <laughs> there's still time. <laughs> now, your contribution to the saxophone has been extensive and ongoing for many years. What do you see for yourself over the next 10, 20 years as a saxophonist? Probably still working with composers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, I'll still come to these events and I really don't view these events as me being able to put on a show. I mean, I think it's very important for me to, to go hear other players, other pieces and, uh, and support them. So, you know, I want to support other, other saxophonists. Now, are there any recent projects that you've been working on that you would like to tell us about? Yeah. Um, well, Matt and I continue to record. So we just uh, wrapped up our, I think, fifth CD and already starting to record some new for the next. So uh, like I said, we have about 40, uh, 40 commissions and we record them all. So we'll just continue to commission and record. And Where can we find out about your recordings and your activities? What's your preferred method of communication? Uh, Yeah, we do have a website, and it's Duo Mountain Yard, M-O-N-T-A-G-N-A-R-D, duomountainyard.com. And from there you can see our five CDs and our concerts and contact information and stuff like that. Sure. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. I wish you the best for the week. Thanks. Just before you go, a quick reminder to let you know that show notes, any links, and a full text transcript are also available. It would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysacks.com forward slash iTunes. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on Barry Sachs Show. <laughs>